0: Hello everyone, and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin from EPAM Continuum. So at my last job, there was a little burrito place downstairs, and when I was in a healthy phase of my life, I was able to walk by and resist the temptation, patting myself on the back. But then they rolled out online ordering, and it had this, do you want to order the same thing you ordered last time feature? So in effect, three seconds of clicking meant that a burrito was waiting for me when I got downstairs. And I think I gained 10 pounds in like six weeks. What's the point of this story? It's the impact, upon my waistline, of digital transformation. Many industries have found themselves suddenly impacted by customer expectations around how, where, and when they want to consume their products and what kind of transparency and interactions they expect or even demand from companies. Besides fast food burritos, of course, perhaps no industry has been so impacted by digital transformation as the print newspaper business. The way that people consume news today bears little resemblance to how their grandparents did. Now, someone with a uniquely relevant point of view on this topic is Alan Rusbridger, who was the editor-in-chief of The Guardian for two decades. He had to figure out how to overlay a digital news business on top of a print one. And happily, he wrote a great book on his experience. It's called Breaking the News, the Remaking of Journalism and Why It Matters Now. And even better, he's here with us today to chat with EPAM Continuum's Ken Gordon, our principal communications specialist, about the book the difference between an audience and a community, and why deep fakes could undo the fabric of society as we know it. Let's hear what they had to talk about.
1: Welcome. Thank you for taking the time to join us today on The Residence Test. I am extremely excited to talk to you.
2: Very pleased to be here.
1: It is an historic moment over in the UK right now, and I was wondering, do you ever wake up and sort of wish you were still editing The Guardian? Does it feel strange to be studying and teaching about the news rather than actually producing it at this point for you? I'm just curious to what's going on sort of in your professional um, mindset right now.
2: Well, I have great pity on anybody who has to cover this story because it's... <laughs> It's kind of unknowable where it's going to go. So uh, you see an awful lot of journalists on television and in print um, really at a loss to be able to describe the situation we're in or or have any way of predicting what's going to happen next. So I'm I'm really rather relieved not to have anything to do with it.
1: (laughs) Congratulations. Now, I would like to begin by uh, having you read something, if that's all right, from the epilogue from your, your wonderful book, Breaking um, News. Would you, would you mind doing that? John? Sure. Great.
2: This is a story half told. There is no ending, happy or otherwise. It would be nice for this book to have been a retrospective from the shelter of the other bank, safely reached. But for the great majority of news organizations, the other bank is still tantalizingly distant for many it's practically invisible.
1: <laughs> now was it a challenge for you as a memoirist to know that you couldn't conclude on the far the far bank of digital transformation? Did you have a sense that that that's where you had to head at the end of this book and and had that Well it,
2: you- it would have been lovely, but I mean it almost that's the point of the book. The the book tries yeah. to describe what it's like to live in a revolution and the point about a revolution is you have no idea where it's going to end. You have There is nothing that in the past that guides you to the future. So, um, you know, it would have been lovely to have left The Guardian, to have tied it up in a pink ribbon and say, there, it's all sorted, it's all safe. But that's not the way the world works at the moment.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself still in conversation with The Guardian editors now um, when you see them doing something or, or see a position they might be sort of able to sharpen or... Uh otherwise refocus on uh
2: well i mean i, I have uh, obviously lots of friends still there and and um and and we talk and engage about these 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 issues but um but i'm also you know and i think anybody who's done a job for a long time is acutely aware that uh, it that advice
1: might not always be well
2: <laughs> so uh, you don't want to be a backseat driver
1: that's sure that's true now one of the things I, I loved about breaking news was that it there had there were so many different elements uh, to the story the narrative was very rich and full and I, I read it as a book about digital transformation and that was the lens I was using to look at it and your standard book about digital um, Creating a digital business lacks many of those dimensions. You, because you're no longer in the business, could be forthcoming about uh, profit and lost data, internal politics, even those private meetings with the Fleet Street elders, that you talk about. So much of the inside baseball, as they say in the vernacular. Um, the narrative, to me, had a kind of novelistic wholeness to it that I find lacking in almost all business books about digital transformation. And I was wondering, was there any significant, anything significant that you um, think about in retrospect that you regret leaving out or that you might have been interested in saying now that you uh, think about it afterwards?
2: I think, uh, I think I'm pretty happy with the balance. I mean, I, I didn't want to do a conventional autobiography uh, and nor did I want to do a sort of dry and dusty book about uh, about the business of media or, or journalism. So I, I, I hope what I did was to get a right blend of the personal uh, and broader reflections on on the way journalism is going to go. I mean, I'm you know, I'm sure I could have written a, a more indiscreet book about, you know, the people I worked with or rubbed up against but but that really wasn't the kind of book that i was interested in writing
1: i understand um one of the things i like is when you talk about describing to your young students sort of how the old-fashioned newspaper business used to work and you do a very good job of sort of outlining and with the stick figures and everything else that you put into it and i wondered has your um has your comfort level with teaching changed over time since you have obviously you've been in the classroom uh, for far more far many more hours. And I can imagine you've sort of developed um, more techniques and more comfort with uh, teaching as a, as a profession. I was wondering about that
2: well I, I I like teaching and I like when I was a journalist full-time, I liked the business of explanatory journalism of of taking a complicated issue and telling it in a way that that would interest and be clear to people um i thought it was necessary to to go into prehistory, as it were <laughs> 20 years ago um because if you're under the age of 40 you have no idea how the world organized itself before so um the point about printing presses for instance if yeah. that was a technology not many people had a printing press and they were usually billionaires and from that ownership model stemmed a form of expertise i put that in inverted commas mm-hmm. and you were as it were literally almost literally handing down a tablet of stone you were saying look here is the news Uh, we are journalists Uh, you you don't really have any other way of uh, accessing this so you're going to have to take our word for it Uh, and thank you very much we'll take your money Uh, and uh, unless you know that that until comparatively recently that you know that that was for 350 years the way that information worked it's impossible to have any perspective on the way that information works now and and so that's why I included that chapter. You have to begin by explaining the world as it was.
1: Sure. And have students taken uh, an understanding from that? And has that deepened sort of their approach to journalism Would you do that?
2: Look, they look. I must say they look mildly interested while I was
1: telling them that. <laughs> well, uh, that's what's so funny about it. I mean, You get that sense. But I, but I, I think it's, if it's you spend a while doing that, they it's, must it's, have to
2: take Describing it. how to make fire in a cave. You know, you think, well, <laughs> why would you... Yeah, it's quite interesting, but why would why would you make things that complicated? Um, uh, but nevertheless, I still thought it was important to include.
1: All right. At one point, you talk about editorial downsizing, and you're right. Asking a smaller team to carry on producing the same output was punishing, and we began to have concerns about the mental welfare of an increasingly stressed workforce. And when I read this, I thought. Well, what about Russ Bridger's mental health? It must have been incredibly stressful to go through some of the things you were talking about in this book. And you don't really reflect on that too much on the pages. No. But, but I imagine that must have been a factor. Well, I,
2: would, I know about a year after stepping down from editing, um, I became aware that I just felt differently. You know, and um, I realized that if you, particularly in an age where you're, you're creating news almost around the clock, um so it's, it's not like the days when you just had one deadline at nine o'clock in the evening you're you know people are are wanting uh updates all the time um mm-hmm. and that leads to adrenaline you know you, you you've constantly got adrenaline coursing through your system and suddenly realizing what a body feels like when it's not got adrenaline um was really quite significant so um um uh, you, know, you almost have to stop doing it in order to realize uh, how extraordinary it was doing what you were doing.
1: Yes, I think one of the things that's certainly valuable to people who aren't even in the journalism business was this notion that when you're trying to build a digital business on top of your ordinary uh, analog business, it creates... An enormous—it's—it's like having another career on top of your career, and your entire company has to add these entire functions and layers of meetings and concerns that they didn't ask before. And so I think you did a good job of sort of um, exposing some businesses well, who are not as ready. you for say,
2: that. You're, you're still producing a newspaper, right? Uh, and the effort of producing a newspaper is as difficult as ever was, but then suddenly you say to your staff, "But by the way, we want you to." Update things every five minutes every 10 minutes. We we want you to do it in video and audio as well as text We want you to be on social media uh, We might want you to do live events as well, right? So it's like and by the way uh, you can't go home at nine o'clock because uh, <laughs> The story keeps updating till midnight uh, so the, the the stress on journalists in their in their working lives now is is very much more considerable than I think it was 30 years ago.
1: I agree. Um, I'm curious about the composition of your book. You must have taken extensive notes while it was happening. Did you ever find yourself becoming self-conscious about what was going on at work because you knew you were also preparing to tell this story? And I I was just wondering if there are any other books you look to as models. I, I believe you talked about Harold Evans's. Um, memoir and are, are there other ones that you use yeah
2: I don't, I don't think i knew at the time that i would write this book so uh, although it's a sort of habit of mine to to, to make notes all the time and and uh, and to collect things i mean you know, I, I discovered when i went back through my emails and my various digital storage devices i had i you know i'm, I'm an inveterate hoarder so it was quite easy to re- recover um contemporaneous um, material um, I can't I can't quite think of a book that is quite like this I mean Harry Evans wrote two two great books about his journalistic career but both were written in trying you know the recollection of tranquillity afterwards um, uh, whereas I suppose mine was a, a bit more sort of nearer to the bone because it was immediately after stepping down
0: mm-hmm
1: Um, One of the things that we hear repeatedly in the book is this idea of reach before revenue. Mm. And it seems like, to me, the true insight is that The Guardian recognized that the readers were a community and that treating readers as the community members rather than an audience was what really allowed you to grow the business, a sort of idea of revenues. revenue follows community, perhaps. And I was wondering uh, how you thought about that, sort of the notion of the idea of the Guardian and Guardian readers as a community and a, and a growing one, a more global one, as you went along.
2: Well, I mean, I, I think... I think most people would now accept that, that the thing that we talked about recently, you know, of a, a passive audience just waiting for the news to be handed down to them is, is disappearing, and especially amongst younger readers. So younger readers, their experience of the world is something that you contribute to and you can challenge and contest and, and share and distribute and alter and correct. Uh, and that's how you would trust. I think there are new techniques of trust that involve um, not saying, take my word for it because I am a journalist or because I work for The Guardian, but because here's my evidence or I'm willing to be challenged and to enter into a discussion about this or here's a link. So there are techniques that are developing that are very different, and I I think... Um, if, you know, it, it was hopeless in the early part of this century, simply to demand that people hand over a lot of money for the kind of content we were producing. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal, but, but nobody on the Guardian thought that was going to work. And so you, you had to build up a much larger community. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, because we all know that the, the revenues are, are much smaller. Um, and you know, thankfully, uh, now The Guardian has a, a a huge community of people who I don't think just feel like passive recipients of wisdom from above. Um, uh, and the business model is, is now sort of falling into shapes. But it but it you know it was a it was a bumpy ride.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that that your book um, gets across is this idea that you know, well into the 20th century, the newspaper was the platform for information. And that part of the reason I think newspapers were blindsided by the rise of digital platforms is that they, they couldn't come to grips with that quickly enough to to realise the relative power that a newspaper suddenly had compared to these other platforms. And I was wondering, when you when that came to you, was it painful for you to realize this? That um, these these crazy digital platforms were kind of usurping your place and well, it,
2: it was it was I mean, yeah. I mean there was nothing not to like about the old world. If you were a, a journalist 30 years ago, working for a for a very solvent news organization with ample resources uh, and a passive audience that, that um, looked up to you, that was really nice. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, in some ways, I wish we could go back to that, but it's, but it's never gonna happen. Um, uh, and so you have to accept reality. And the reality we all know is that virtually everywhere in the world, Newspaper circulations are in permanent decline. Yeah. Digital things are in permanent ascent. Now, there's there's an awful lot that is hateful and wrong about the digital world, but there's an awful lot that's good.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But there's no good wishing for a world that's never going to come back. So, um, as you know, the, the task while I was editing was to keep the, the, the print revenues coming in um, because we couldn't afford to turn off print. And try and simultaneously imagine what this digital world was going to require. And that was a very complicated question because it required new techniques, new philosophies, new approaches. uh, And running two types of newsroom simultaneously, convincing the skeptics that this had to happen, even if you couldn't see where the money was. Uh, reassuring the traditionalists. I mean, it you know it wasn't easy, but but um, but it was you know it was really interesting. I mean <laughs> it, was, it was a fun time to be um, uh, to be there because it was there all to be remade and reimagined. that that's
1: that's fascinating. That's cool. Uh, do you see what's happening now with this deep fake technology and the ability for uh, somebody with the right tools to uh, put out stuff that's undetectably false yeah. stuff that seems true I well, imagine that be a, a real I challenge it's
2: one of the biggest issues of our age now that that, um, that people don't know what to trust I think I've seen surveys that say two-thirds of people now can't tell a good news source from a from a bad news source mm-hmm. uh, and soon as you say we won't be able to trust the evidence of our own eyes because even video which you know seemed to be really real um, uh, is going to be fake Um, and this is potentially catastrophic for society because if you can't have an an agreed basis of facts then nothing works you can't have law, you can't have science you can't have government Uh, and so we're looking at a a very frightening place where I I hope people will yearn for some kind of return not to the techniques of news production but to uh, ways of establishing very basic things like this is true that isn't true this happened that didn't happen mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know that, that should give journalists hope because actually that's what we do we're quite good at that
1: do your students feel sort of the, the ethical responsibility um, that's going to come along with this this sort of necessity of building trust that they're going to be charged with when they get into the world uh,
2: yes I think they are you know they're, they're part of this generation that that is also trying to negotiate their way and um, it, it, in a way an an academic start to life is is quite useful because you know that, that's what universities do you know they, they teach you how to evaluate sources and, and how to mm-hmm about footnotes and how, how to think about the value of evidence um, but I think there is a danger that we're going to have a sort of two-speed society in which you have elites who are uh, able to afford good information and, and have the techniques of valuation, uh, and then everyone else who has to make do with whatever information is uh, out there and um, uh, and may not be so well-equipped. So so you're going to have rubbish information and good information. Uh, and, um, you know, we can see the danger of that playing out in lots of countries already. Sure.
1: I, I, I noticed that um, the Atlantic recently put a paywall back up. I don't know if you saw that, the uh, the Atlantic in the States. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I really think that's, uh, it was a shock to me when I saw it, but I understand why they did it
2: yeah well, we you know we all understand that people are scrambling around for for any um, uh, you know, in a model that, that's going to pay. Um, I mean, I, I quote Dean bequet, the the executive editor of the New York Times in this book who who's you know his organization has created one of the most successful paywalls of all. Mm-hmm. And yet there he is. he's an African American saying, I worry about the 97% of America that doesn't read the New York Times. Um, uh, and I'm, in, in the book, I explored the example of Sweden where there are really good newspapers that are quite expensive and not much read uh, in, in terms of the overall population. And meanwhile, the playing field of, of, of information is being flooded by neo-Nazis and uh, anybody who wants to go in and stir up uh, you know, horrible feelings and and instincts in society, uh, and that's having a, a, a rather bad effect on Swedish politics. So, this this information inequality is is uh, is a, a, something that is, you know, for us all to consider.
1: I agree. Uh, and now, just moving away for a second from journalism, are there any non-journalistic industries like like healthcare or retail? That you think have reached the far store, the far shore of digitization. Or do you look to any other non-sort of news orgs that have figured out how to make a workable digital business, or did you look at them while you were um, in the process of trying to uh, digitize The Guardian?
2: Well, I don't think anybody can say there's another bank and that they're safe on it. Uh, that's almost the point of the digital age that. Um, you're always going to be vulnerable to people who can pick up something better quicker faster um, so you know the, the music business is probably a bit further down the road than the um, news business um, the, the the digital um, entertainment video business is you know it, it has solved some, some things but uh, you're always going to be vulnerable to somebody coming along and doing something uh, better. I just think, I think you know, uh, not, it's, a, it's a sort of cliche now to refer to the age of Gutenberg and say that this is a comparable age we're in. Uh, but if you go back to Gutenberg, it took about 150 years for that to sort itself out. Right. And, you know, we're about five minutes into this one. <laughs> And yet, people are saying, "Look, Facebook, please sort yourself out by next Monday." Um, <laughs> and they're not going to sort themselves out by next Monday. You know, this is this is going to take twenty, thirty, forty years before we begin to establish a new set of of, of uh, rules and procedures and understandings and the education to be able to deal with e- even some of the implications of what's happening at the moment
1: that's true and I, I i was it reminds me of one of the things that's really amazing about your story and the story of the guardian is sort of how you were able to take what was a you know i don't want to say provincial but but a, a british paper and make it into an international news organization because of sort of connectivity and because of what happened after 9-11 and all the other things like the sun it, it, the the sun really never sets on today's Guardian. It is a global voice, and you started that. and I and I'm curious to see how you see um, the paper sort of expanding their kind of empire building beyond moving into America and Australia and everywhere else. There, they're doing it. To other plans for thinking about what else they'd need to do to increase that global reach.
2: Well, we, I think, it's fairly apparent now, 2019. What doesn't work so. What doesn't work is what most people have tried so you you see declining revenues declining readership and you cut the newsroom uh, you have fewer reporters it becomes a less interesting and valuable news organization so people the decline accelerates even faster and you get into a circle of death um That's not great. We know that doesn't work. (laughs) And in a way, The Guardian, because it doesn't have shareholders, had the luxury of being able to do the opposite. So saying, actually, let's try the alternative approach, which is to say we will invest as much as we can afford to in the journalism. Uh, And, you know, in the last five years I was editing, we did just fabulous investigations. Uh, So we did, you know, tax, torture, rendition. Uh, the snowden revelations we did policing we did tax avoidance we did uh, environment toxic dumping climate change All very uh, intensive expensive often legally fraught stories um, and that seemed to be in defiance of any sensible business model you know that's the, that's the first stuff you cut yeah and yet in the end it turned out to be the business model because when we went to the readers and said look you're going to have to pay us something uh we we tried asking them two questions we said look you can you can pay us something as a private good so you can read the guardian but no one else can that that's how news was financed for 350 years and nobody really wanted that so we said well what about news as a public good so you pay the guardian not so only you can read it, but that's so however everybody on the planet can read it. And Guardian readers love that idea. And mm. there's now a million of them paying. Uh, not, not one of them has to pay because you can get the Guardian totally for free. Uh, and I, I think the Guardian's ambition is to have double that now. They want two million. Um, and as long as they keep doing journalism that matters, I think the readers will support them. They they will say if that's the kind of journalism you're going to do, that is the kind of journalism the world needs. I will support that, um, uh, and then I think the potential for expansion and 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 other forms of more conventional revenue then become much easier.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, now finally I have the most important question for you. Are you ready, Alan? I'm ready. Are you still playing Chopin? And if not, what are you playing?
2: Okay, so um. my my previous book this is what you're referring to was a book called play it again and and that was about really trying to find something in the midst of all this uh tension and stress that just for 20 minutes a day kept me sane and and that with me was playing the piano and i played a big piece by Chopin, and it took me 18 months to learn it and uh, uh and uh that was my other life and uh, sh- short answer to your question is yes, I'm still playing. I'm not playing that piece any longer because it's very, very hard. Um, <laughs> but um, in Oxen, where I'm now based, there are lots of musicians, and uh, I have even more time to play the piano than I did before. Do
1: you play any other genres besides classical?
2: Uh, I, I mean, I, I, if, if given enough drink and a, and a... <laughs> Um, I, I will sit down and, and play show tunes um, all evening, but, um, um, but that doesn't happen very often.
1: All right, it's on the record. We have it. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate you it's taking your time. You. I really appreciate it. Take care. Great.
0: EPAM Continuum is a global innovation design firm with studios in Boston, Milan, and Shanghai. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real, because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks to Alan Rusbridger and Ken Gordon for their great conversation today. Cheers to Kip Palalis, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Numerous appreciations to the aforementioned Ken Gordon, our producer, for all of his masterminding behind the scenes. I'm your host, Pete Chapin. This podcast is not a deep fake. And to our listeners, we thank you for your ears.